0: Welcome to the Bike Portland Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Maz. In this episode, we hear the story of Portlander Felipe Nystrom. But before we get to the interview, I want to share a content warning. This episode includes mentions of physical and sexual abuse, suicide, and descriptions of excessive drug and alcohol use. I first heard about Felipe's story in fall of 2019, and we actually got together for our first interview in July of that year. For various reasons, I was never able to share the story on Bike Portland, and it's been nagging at me ever since, so I'm very excited to finally bring it to you. I'm also grateful that Felipe trusted me with details about his childhood he's never shared publicly before. Some of you might know Felipe as an elite competitor on the regional racing circuit, who's had a meteoric rise through the ranks, and in just a few seasons has gone from a beginner in 2015 to Costa Rican national champion in 2019 and a World Cup competitor this year. But his cycling success is just a tiny part of Felipe's life story. The first 30 years of his life were literally a struggle for survival. Before he went into rehab and ultimately moved to Portland in 2013, Felipe was hopeless and homeless, living on the streets of San Jose, Costa Rica, after a life filled with traumatic experiences and after several attempts to commit suicide. Suffice it to say, Felipe's life has gone through a remarkable transformation. Here's our conversation. Felipe Nystrom, thanks so much for coming on and, uh, and sharing your story here on the podcast. It's great to have you here.
1: Yeah, thank you. Uh, it's great to be here, and thank you very much for the opportunity to be a part of it.
0: You know, one of the things, Felipe, that really uh, really strikes me about your story, I mean, like, I've been thinking about it, you know, for all of us, our background is important, right? It, it kind of, like, makes who we were, who we are now, and who where we want to be in the future. But I think yours even even more so. Uh, in a lot of ways, you know, just given given the things that you've been through, so I wonder if you could take us back to some of those early memories of your childhood, being someone with you know your mom coming from the states, right, and mm-hmm. your father in a small, uh, remote village, really, in uh, in uh, Costa Rica, mm-hmm. and you were you were born in Costa Rica, right?
1: Yep, correct. So what born some, and raised.
0: Born and raised. So what are some of your first
1: memories? from being you know your childhood in costa rica so as you said i was born and raised in costa rica my mom's from from the states the the east coast she went down to costa rica with the peace corps in like 1978 to teach um this indigenous tribe uh how to read and write uh way out in the middle of nowhere um and then she loved it came back to the states picked up all her stuff moved back to Costa Rica, and never came back.
0: And you say middle of
1: nowhere. You're not talking
0: like a long highway (laughs) in the middle of suburban sprawl. This is different.
1: Yeah, so this is, even today, uh, it's about a five-hour drive from San Jose, the capital, uh, towards the Atlantic coast. Um, Then you have to cross this river in a rinkety canoe-looking thing. Um, Now there's a bus and a little bit better road, but it's about... An hour drive from cross after crossing the river, um, so now we're talking 1980. This was all like dirt roads, gravel roads. Um, so it was about a three-hour, two-hour hike from the river to this village. If you are lucky, there was people coming by on ho- with horses. You could get catch a hitch a ride on horse. Um, and it's uh, in this area called Amubri um, from, and it's part of the Bribri Bri reservation. So yeah, I mean, even today with like where we are with cars and transportation, it's like an eight hour trip from yeah. from from the capital
0: so that and that's where your dad was from,
1: yeah, and your mom went
0: over there as part of the peace corps,
1: yeah, but then that's where she met my dad um and then I happened, but when she was pregnant she, I mean this was nineteen eighty she was about thirty 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 three years old, you know, white woman in out in the jungle uh as much as she thought she wanted to rough it. <laughs> uh and you know be live that lifestyle having a baby way out there by yourself was probably very scary um and my dad he was he was a lot younger I think he might have been about uh twenty or so um so just a kid, and he i mean he'd never been outside of this this little town uh so for him the idea to go into San Jose was like not so from the very beginning there they kind of Went their own ways. She, my mom, went back to the to to the city, but she did. Uh, some of my earliest memories are going down to Puerto Viejo, uh, which is a beach beach town there on the Atlantic coast. Um, which was from there, it's about two hours or so, to maybe three hours. Um, but again, now, now then it was tough for her with a baby. I mean, the hike itself was tough. Now with a baby, and then couple years later my brother came along Mm. so then there was like two Mm -hmm. babies (laughs) yeah uh so i think for a while they tried to connect oh and of course phones i mean there was no communication right right uh it's like call the local store and leave a message with the the grocery guy and then the next time somebody came in for supplies they could pass the message on and that's how they did it um but those are some of my earliest memories is going down to on the beach in the, yeah on the beach and then half time in the city.
0: Yeah. And your mom was uh, really busy right doing like humanitarian work and stuff like that. What kind of yep. work did she do? Yeah,
1: it's interesting. So, my mom uh and this is something that I've become more 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 open to talking about um, cuz I I was having a hard time finding the way uh, a correct way to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um and so she's, as a person, she's amazing. She's like, she's helped hundreds, thousands of people through her work. The give and take, I guess, was that caused uh, the the mother side of her to be almost non-existent. Mm. Um, and so w- along with some of those great memories that I had, are my, some of my first memories are also some of the most traumatizing uh which kind of planted the seed for stuff that would happen come up many years later um because first there was my my brother's father mm. um who for the time couple of years that he was he was there i was uh beat uh pretty much every day he would come home drunk and the first thing he'd do is find me so i Have these like very vivid memories of, as soon as I would hear him coming home, me running. And actually, it's interesting to this day when I my clothes drawers, um, my underwear and my socks are always on the bottom drawer, and it's because when I was two years old, three years old, I would run, and that's where my under my the the only the only drawer I could climb into to hide, was the bottom one. Uh, and that was my my sock and underwear drawer, and that just kind of s- stuck. And um, at the time, we had this Salvadorian refugee. Um, her name is Marta, and she's actually uh, who I consider like, my like uh, a grandmother.
0: Oh, so someone your mom had to maybe come help in the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, who ended up kind of being your yeah, raising so, you, kind of like she, a nanny or something.
1: Yep, exactly. So basically, she so. My mom has the her work, the work she does, and even to this day is all about um, helping other people, uh, helping refugees. So like it started with you know, Peace Corps. I guess it happened even when she was in high school. She was like mm. um, helping at hospitals and things like that. But anyway, uh, after working with the indigenous people, uh, then it moved to in the '80s. There was the the war in Nicaragua, war in El Salvador um so a lot of those refugees were coming in so she was working with with them um and then there was this one woman who 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 she met marta Mm. and so she kind of said well you know why don't you help me take care of of felipe and and um i remember her taking care of me um and standing between this like this guy was huge he was like i don't know six foot something also a salvadorian same part of the same refugee group and he came with all sorts of issues and um i mean he was running from a war uh and losing everything and so now i can sort of understand how why he did the things he did you know his alcoholism and um but at the time it just sucked (laughs) um and you were only like,
0: four or five, or yeah,
1: this no, I was like two, two, and two, three. two three years so old.
0: The only kid around because you, your brother, yeah. and sister weren't he, there yet.
1: My 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 brother was about to be born, and so this was probably between when I was one and three years old. Um, and I I remember like there's this this two very vivid memories I have of me running and hiding in you know my under trying to put my stuff on, and I could just like leave poke one eye out, and I'd see him come in, walk around, leave. Um, Most of the time, he'd find me. Um, And then the other one is Marta trying to stand between us. Um, And I think I I don't remember. I remember her standing between us. And I remember, like, she had a bottle uh, um, with formula. Um, And I remember seeing the bottle, the milk or the formula spilled on on the ground. I can't remember what happened to her. Um, maybe I blocked it or I don't want to re- remember that was just the first of many uh, i guess traumatizing uh situations that i that I lived through after he left um a few years later came my sister's father, so we're all three from different ones he, he was part of a second or third or fourth group of refugees that came from El salvador um and uh kind of the same thing, really young guy. He didn't know how to be, he didn't know how to, he didn't know how to be a father to two kids that weren't his. Um and in the meantime, while my mom was out helping all these people doing all these great things, um she had fired Marta because apparently Marta stole a toy toy of mine or some diapers to send back to El Salvador. Um so then she was stuck finding people to leave leave me with, which unfortunately then led to uh, babysitters that sexually abused me. Um, and that's the other part that I wasn't, I guess, maybe as ready to talk about a couple years ago, that since I've been able to work on even more. Um, so from basically from my first memories of when I was about two years old to about, Eight or nine years old um, uh there were a lot of great memories, but unfortunately, a lot of the ones that I held on to uh for a really long time were the the pain like getting beat up getting um being sexually abused by both men and women that that took care of me uh, took care of me so this is why I say like as a person and the work she does it, it's amazing she helps she's helped you know countless people. But then, at the flip side of that was that the family side of it was was, um, what do you say, like abandoned? I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's
0: that that trauma of what you went through in terms of abuse, but then also the acknowledgement, which you, you probably didn't understand back then, but I'm I know you understand now that that your mom basically let they she abandoned she put you in those positions. So that's another layer of the pain.
1: Yeah, and I think it was it was. I think the hardest thing about that situation was that I remember I would throw temper tantrums when she would tell me that, uh, and I can't remember the, the, there was one main woman lady. I don't, I don't remember how old she was. She was young, um, probably in her twenties. Whenever I would hear that she was going to be the one that was going to take care of me. I do remember throwing temper tantrums and I kicked and I screamed. And then my mom, would hit me because I was being a brat, right? And of course, I—I I don't know—I was, you know, six years old. I didn't know how to say what was explain what was going on. So then I just got yelled at by my mom. <laughs> I just got hit by her, and now this woman's gonna come and do these things to me. Um, so I think um, it just created a lot of fear and uncertainty in me that uh, it took th- over thirty years to try to work through um and there's a lot you know trust issues and things like that that even today I don't uh that I still have to I work on uh a lot more than I think others <laughs> and and somehow you you managed to
0: survive those years and from a pretty young age you you found some something of an escape in sports right
1: yep yep um so sports became something where it was my the thing that I could run away from all the pain, and I didn't need anybody to do it. You know, I could. In Costa Rica, we play soccer, um, so I, you know, was into that.
0: So sports were to escape early. Uh-huh. You remember you, you mentioned you played gymnastics as well. You did yeah. gymnastics yeah. as well. Yeah. So, but also another aspect of your mom, and I mean, she just had such a big impact on your life, right? For for better, for worse um is that because of some of her connections right she was able to get you into good schools and i'm assuming maybe mm-hmm. some good sports programs that you might not have had access to if without
1: her y- yes and no the schools for sure mm. um so back in 1980 when when she moved to costa rica there was probably six expats in costa rica and they all knew each other <laughs> uh and so uh one of them was this guy named Wood- woodson brown um who said, hey, we should start a school. It's one of the most expensive schools in Costa Rica to this day. Mm. It's one of the biggest. It's one of the best. So that was one opportunity I was able to go to this school. Um, it was it was tough because, you know, these kids, they had everything. Um, and for my mom, it was more, yeah, your shoes are torn, but you you still have shoes. There's kids out there. That don't have to have no shoes, so you don't really need shoes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and it was always everything that came in was every was for everybody else. Because as long as we had the bare minimum, that's real. That's really all we needed. Um. And that part, I'd I d- i do not I I don't re- I don't really that that I don't have really have such a big problem w- with that way of thinking. The problem was created being in a school where you're surrounded by a bunch of kids that have absolutely everything. Um, and finding the one kid that doesn't have anything. Uh or not that doesn't have anything, doesn't have the physical stuff, the material stuff. Yeah. I mean these uh,
0: were these were well off rich yeah, kids yeah. to put it, you know, inelegantly. <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah. You were more you were different than them.
1: Yeah. Um so I I did have I don't know if maybe there's something that was changed in me if my, the, because of everything that had happened up until that point, that just made me an easy target mm. or it just, there was something about me that, that like some pheromone or something I was putting out that made bullies go, there, this is the guy. <laughs> so I was, you know, then I would go to school, get beat up at school or, you know, um, but the educate, I got a great education. Through, uh, I was there from third to sixth grade. Um, I was really small, so I didn't get to play too much soccer there. I Most of my soccer I got to play in my... When we finally kind of settled down, because by the time I was thir- 11, we had moved like 13 times. Um, and so Santa Ana is the town where we, just outside of, of San Jose on the west side, um, is where we kind of finally settled down. Mm-hmm.
0: So, uh, once you um you're sort of making your way through school, I- I'm amazed how you said how many times you moved. That is, yeah, that's another level Oof. of thing that Oof. I hadn't <laughs> considered. but that's in and of itself uh, tough to go through. but you're i'm I'm assuming you're sort of like I mean, it, the meantime too, you're sort of maturing. You're growing up a little bit, and uh, the what's happened in your in your past hasn't really come up in terms of a reckoning yet. Uh, until mm-hmm. you're what junior high you get, yep. start to get a little bit older and you start to maybe understand what's going on and of course you're, you're still getting bullied by these kids to some degree right mm-hmm. so tell me about like that moment as you kind of got into junior <clears throat> high junior high and high school
1: after sixth grade um i, I changed schools i ended up in the european school mm. and one of the things that happened there was country day school was they were strict mm. like it was unheard of if you to not turn in homework. Like, that's you just didn't do it. So everything was very, very strict. When I went to the European school, that's what I had been doing for the last three or four years. And so, you know, they left. They gave us homework. I just did it. Um, Apparently, that, that didn't go over too well with all my classmates. And it was a small school. I only had about seven or eight classmates. So it wasn't like you could have a couple friends and nobody else like you. Either they liked you or they didn't. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And then it was weird because I was starting to get beat up at this school for actually doing my homework, Mm -hmm. right?
0: Um, So you were kind of too smart for your own good and and they didn't like how you're kind of maybe raising the
1: bar and making them look bad. Basically, (laughs) yeah. yeah. It's like Or like say, so did everyone do their homework? And then people would say, ah, Felipe did. Mm -hmm. There's Felipe. And in my mind, I was just doing what... They told us to do this. You do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I remember I got to the point where I figured out that I could buy lollipops. Mm-hmm. And whenever I was going to get beat up, I'd be like, here, have a lollipop. And then that would save me until I ran out of lollipops. And <laughs> yeah, and they were like, well, now you don't have any lollipops. So the education was great. But at the same time, um, it was a very big, there was a lot of partying and a lot of drinking. And I was never invited to these. So throughout, I think one of the biggest things that stood out was that um, it didn't really seem to matter where I was. I didn't really fit in anywhere. I was always too American for the, the Costa Ricans. I was too Costa Rican for people from the States. I had not enough money for these people, too much money for these people. I was too short for these people, too tall for these other ones. You know, it was it was always, it was always like a like a square peg trying to fit in a triangle. <laughs> Eighth, ninth, tenth grade. Now I'm starting to realize all of these things, and I'm not really sure what to do about them. But I was still doing my sports. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'd get up. By this point, I had started a little bit in cycling. Mm-hmm. Um, so like 15, 16? 15, 16. yeah. Um,
0: and, and Costa Rica, for people that don't know, Costa Rica has a pretty strong cycling culture, but in terms of like the professional elite level, right? There's some famous Costa Ricans that have come out of there. So it is a thing there in terms of road cycling. Um, but so yeah, 15, 16, you got into cycling Mm -hmm. and then you, you, you found something where you were a, a, a square peg in a square hole and you seemed to fit. Mm hmm. But then, what happened? There was another disappointment there, right? So, something that happened with the coach or something like that. Yeah, yep.
1: Yeah. Um, I do remember there was uh, there was uh, Pan American Games uh, were coming up. There's been several. There's like um, or international races uh, where the coach ultimately ended up taking his son. Even though I had qualified higher, like I won the qualifying race and I'd finished consistently finished better, had better placings. Mm, mm. Um and I wasn't mature enough to be able to handle that. I wasn't mature enough to to just say, All right, well I gotta keep working harder and for me it was like well screw you I'm not doing this anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so you gave, up, you gave up biking at that point? Yeah. The other part of it was because I wanted to be a soccer player. Mm. My cycling coach, he was on my case that I need to stop playing soccer. My soccer coach was on my case that I needed to stop riding the bike because they don't really... The faster I got at biking, the slower I got at soccer or vice versa. Mm, yeah. And I was really split because I really liked both of them. But uh, soccer was ultimately the, the dream. Um, I was real close to playing in first division. Uh, Like right when I was about to make that jump, I got injured playing soccer. Somebody slid into my leg and Mm. I broke my ankle. Well, he broke my ankle. And I think that was the moment once I knew I couldn't play anymore where it was like, well, now what? Mm. Now all of a sudden I'm just sitting there, uh, Mm. you know, trying to think about what I'm going to do. Uh, now that i can't do this thing that was the only thing i wanted to do
0: and you also um you also started working at a uh, like a a betting call mm-hmm. center for like sports book betting right right which uh is not <laughs> the most uh clean environment let's say i'm imagining right with right? with the kind of people that are going to be betting a lot and that kind yep. of thing so
1: yeah i think so all, all of this kind of came almost i'd say almost in, in in about the same almost within the same year where I had lost this thing that the, the thing I loved, the thing that kept me going um, through life. Um, it didn't occur to me that I could try to ride my bike anymore. Uh, at the same time, I got invited with some some uh, former classmates to go out, uh, and we went to this club. And I remember I had my like I was starting. That was one of the first times I drank, and. uh Everybody seemed super friendly, right? Mm-hmm. And and I and I was starting to feel tipsy. I remember the first drink with a beer that tasted horrible. I'm like, why how the why in the world do people drink this? <laughs> uh but then the second one I started feeling it and uh I was like, wow, yeah. And then before I knew it, I was up on a table dancing, taking my shirt off, and everybody seemed super nice. All these guys were like, Yeah, party, and like these ladies over there, and and for somebody who <laughs>
0: didn't get invited to the parties and was always having trouble fitting in and never felt like people loved you and liked you. Yep. There you go. A few drinks and you had the time of your life.
1: Yep. Yep. It was, uh, I think that was one of those like click moments Mm. where actually that same day, a group of people, uh, some of the people I I met, um, they invited me to my first, uh, rave. we had got been there for half an hour and I drank like a beer or two and the guy said, uh, one of the guys said, hey, so I have some E. I I know you've never you've never done anything, but we don't have to take it. But if you want some, I have some. In my head, I was al- already like, uh, like I knew what I was talking about. I had no idea what he was talking about. He just said E. I'm like, I don't know what that is. But I said, well, if you're not going to take it, I'll take it. <laughs> like I knew what I was doing. And uh, so he gave me half. And I thought it was the most amazing thing in the world. um everybody was super friendly um we danced the entire night. then there was the after party. It was like I went from being like the kid that nobody wanted to talk to to like the most popular kid of the party and at the same time, this stuff with the cycling was happening um where that had just happened, the injury just happened um and now I'm thinking, well, shoot now I I can't do all this other stuff that I wanted to. I can do this other thing where I am accepted. Um, and at first, you know, I was able to keep it sort of under control. As the cycling in Costa Rica is like they do. There are a, a lot of really good cyclists. Um, uh, Amador, one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, there's a lot of tradition in cycling, a lot of passion for it. Um so I never had any results. I think maybe one time I was third in a 17 to 18 national championship or something. I don't know. That's probably... And maybe I won a mountain bike race.
0: So that's <laughs> not a part of your story that continued. Like it pretty much no. shut down. Yep. It, it stopped. And, um, then, and then things got more and more sort of out of control with the partying, right? If right. I recall.
1: Yep. Yep. So... Now I was in university. I was going doing law school, um, and again I was hit with the same thing. I thought I I couldn't wait to get out of high school because I figured adults, university, would definitely not be as childish as or immature as 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 kids in high school. So I I took all the night classes, um, and so I was just like the I think I was. 16 and a half 17 and the closest classmate i had was like 32 so like when it was time to do group projects and things like that nobody really wanted to be with the kid i didn't even have an idea at the time and they wanted to meet at the bars and i couldn't go to the bar so nobody wanted to be stuck with that guy so then i was like now i'm finally in university Mm -hmm. and here i am again with this (laughs) you know at the i got this job at the at this at a call center um call centers are a really big thing in costa rica they still are um and this one was at a sports book so basically if you wanted to place a bet uh you call and then i take it for you (laughs) there was a lot of there was a lot of drinking um a lot of a lot of weed there was a lot of uh, you know other drugs somehow like this there's some there was something that had changed in me where i went from being this like really shy quiet but when I drank, I felt like invincible. I turned into like the type of person that I'd like to be, you know, somebody that wasn't afraid or that was super sociable or like mm-hmm. was the life of the party. You could talk about whatever with who, whoever. And then in the beginning, it was mostly alcohol, maybe once a couple times a month. It started going more and more into uh, now every weekend Then it was every Wednesday and every weekend. And then every day, then it got to like, oh, lunch break, everybody do the bar. Let's go, you know, have, see how many beers we can drink in that half hour, come back to work, take some bets. (laughs) It's where I started to feel like I kind of fit in. Um, Unfortunately, or fortunately, I I do still keep some of those friendships. Hmm. Some of them (laughs) I've come around and they're like, Dude, I thought you were dead already. <laughs> like, well, because you had some
0: close calls back then, right? Yeah. I, if, if I recall, you uh, some some DUI crashes, some drunk driving crashes yep. that were really really serious.
1: Yep, yep. Um, one time we decided after work we got got done and we went off to the bar at like three in the morning. Somebody thought it'd be a great idea to shut down the bar and like tip, pile a bunch of beer in the and into the car. And drive to the beach to watch the sunrise, um, and it's one time I went. I went off into a ditch. Another time, I rear-ended somebody going from a rave to an after-party, um, and then in two thousand and four, that was the last the last accident I had. Apparently, I fought somebody for my car keys, and they finally were like, "Whatever, fine, take them," um, and I ended up uh, taking out a telephone pole. Um, wow. But slowly, it just got went from alcohol to drugs. Mm. Um, and then when I was about 21, 22, someone introduced me to cocaine. And it did bring me very close to death several times um, over the next about eight
0: years. And so you you spent so much of the early part of your <clears throat> life having pain and trauma be done to you. And then you spent those several years in your in your teenage years, doing the pain to yourself and bringing it on mm-hmm. to yourself. Yep. And you so you'd moved back to New Jersey, right, from Costa Rica to, mm-hmm. to live with your to live with your aunt and things. You, yep. you ended up partying there as well.
1: Yep, 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 yep. That was two thousand and four. Um, I guess we thought maybe I could do better if I was in the states. Um, first I lived with my grandfather and grandmother, and that was. Um,
0: happening in New, in New Jersey after you'd already been partying mm-hmm. like crazy in mm-hmm. Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. So that you left New Jersey eventually, right?
1: Because it well, just didn't end up working out. So that was in uh, my, New Jersey, my grandfather's house. While I was in the States, uh, I didn't really have access to drugs and I didn't really take the go through the trouble of like trying to find anything, but I drank. I drank a lot um, to the point where like this. that's where this happened, where I had that accident. Mm-hmm. And then I think like, two or three days later my aunt lent me her car after i totaled mine and i went partying and then i remember her my phone have looking at my phone at some point in the morning and i had like 30 missed calls and i she had told me i need my car by 7 a.m and it was like 6 45 and i was in philadelphia <laughs> um so that was it you and and i was like trying to rush home uh i didn't check the car i didn't like I don't I I just was like I got there and like tried to avoid her and she was so late that she didn't want to deal with me so she just she had to go do her thing when when she came back she came back with a box of cigarettes I think it was a, a lighter and a bra I have no idea how any of those things got in there like I don't remember and they're very religious so for her it was like sacrilege you know I I had. Done mm. acts of the devil. So she basically in her showed you the door, and, and she was like, "You're you're out, mm. you're out." And so, so you go back, back to Costa Rica, to, back to Costa Rica. And
0: in the meantime, you would met a girl, and
1: yeah, that's you so, had your son
0: at that point when you're 22 or so.
1: Yeah. So interestingly, I met her a little bit before I left to the states in oh. 2004, and then I had been back for a couple weeks, two, three weeks, and I'm like, oh, I wonder what she's up to. I'll give her a call, see how she's doing." That call changed my life. I I do think a lot about what would have happened if that call hadn't happened. Um, We met up. um, She brought cocaine with her. We partied. And we, like, started a relationship again. Um, And then 2005-ish, from 2004 to 2005 or so, that's when the partying... Really ramped up. After a couple of years of of that, I was like, okay, "We're gonna end up killing each other here. We're, you know, we we can't do this anymore. We have to uh, stop or break up." And she wanted to keep doing it, so we broke up. Um, not knowing that she was pregnant at that point, I was about twenty two, twenty three when my when my son was born. It was actually after I left her, or we broke up, but not even. But after we broke up, my partying got worse. And I thought I could control it. And like even when my son was born and I had it, we ended up falling on weekends where were mine from Friday to Sunday. I didn't do anything because I was with him. Mm. Um, but then Monday to Thursday, mm. like nonstop, you know, mm. until I got to the point where I couldn't, uh, I stopped showing up and I couldn't afford to pay child support and then not being able to keep a job. Um so- and then it got tough. So
0: basically, this is the point where you start to realize that almost every facet of your life, unless you're high or drunk or whatever, almost every facet of your life is is bad, yep. is, is making you unhappy, is is <clears throat> is in your mind thinking that you've failed and you mm-hmm. people don't like you and all these things from family to your girlfriend to job. I mean, so that was kind of a, a point Mm-hmm. and i mean what what sort of happened next in terms of where where did you go after that
1: so i think um now i would have been about 25 looking back i had slowly been trying to kill myself um like it would not have been a problem at all if in one of these drunken high moments i got hit by a car i run when in i go into like the most dangerous neighborhood at two in the morning like nobody's business like just um and uh that's when when i started really thinking of, like you said i was i was a failure i don't know nothing i couldn't do anything right there was the the pain from the trauma that i didn't know how to deal with there was the pain from knowing that now i'm a grown up um and a failure
0: and a father and, who had a son yeah, and, that, and that didn't go as you'd hoped maybe at the time. Yeah. Exactly.
1: And definitely wasn't being the person, the father that I thought I would be. You know, I in my mind, I, I, you know, I was always, if I ever have a kid, I'm not going to do any of, I'm right. like, I'm not going to do any of this. So now I'm not there. Um, so then I do drugs to try to forget all of that. But then when the drugs went, went when the effect of the drugs went away, then it was, like now I feel even worse because I'm even more of a failure, and then so I need to do more drugs and then it was just this vicious cycle of um wanting to stop using, not being able to, even when I didn't want to It's like my body was i couldn't control I had no control over my body, then the psychotic breakdown like it was so because I was drinking and doing so much cocaine. I know now. I was starting to hear things, starting to see things. Um, I swore the FBI, the DEA, the everybody was about to come. But the biggest thing I remember about that part of my life was wishing that I was dead, praying that I didn't wake up the that that the next day, praying that somebody would break into my house and just shoot me because I tried to commit suicide um a couple times um but I couldn't I guess I, I tried to cut myself um but nowhere near enough to where like it was actually gonna do anything um and that made me feel worse because I was like I'm such a failure I can't even do this right right uh and so and I'm so such a coward that I can't even do it myself that I need somebody else to do it and so all of this it was just a constant you're not good enough you're not and I think, one of the, that was probably one of the biggest things that was, it was not so much what happened when I was a a kid, the, the sexual abuse or the, the, the beatings or I think it's, I took it as I was of so little importance that my, my mom let this happen to me. And if my own mom didn't care enough to not let this happen to me, then why should I care about it? You know, I don't deserve to live. Um, and so that was when things really started going south. I was able to keep one more apartment um after that, and then I went to the couch surfing on on friends like just coming up with crazy stories. Ah, oh, the sewage broke in my apartment can i let me can I crash at your place for a couple of days and um but within a few months then you know, they they caught on and I wasn't able to do that anymore. And then it was the streets. And something interesting about the streets is that they it became my family. There was there was trust. Mm-hmm. Like you knew what to expect. Sometimes you see somebody dressed in a tie and you know they're all nice and they're scammers, right? They take you for everything you got. On the street, you knew what to expect. And if you got taken it was your own fault. You know? and the 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 alliances that the bonds that you formed were like life-saving somebody who doesn't have anything was willing to share you know what little garbage was being thrown out with with me um and that was something that not a lot of people had done before uh so as bad as it was there were also some really amazing moments um I know I don't recommend anybody go and find out <laughs> for themselves uh uh I am actually really grateful that I had the opportunity to live on the street for for i guess it must have been about two years or so.
0: How did you find <clears throat> your way to rehab
1: um so throughout these this time, I tried to i would purposely get into fights, hoping you know I'd get stabbed shot. I guess my I was kind of scrappy, and so I got to the point where people kind of stayed away from me, which was like, no, come on, guys, you gotta like, come on, I'll take five of you on, let's go. It's almost like
0: you wanted to, you wanted to die from some natural way because you didn't have confidence you could do yeah. it
1: purposely. Yeah, because I basically and the I was, disappointment that might come with that. I was, and that's what had happened. The di- right, I, I had already tied, I failed at that too, and now I needed somebody to do it for me because I couldn't do it myself. I believe I tried uh conscientiously I tried about i think it was six times to commit suicide the seventh time um was I was done you know I hadn't eaten in over a week I was just done and uh that night or th- i was g i wanted to commit suicide I wanted to die i wanted there was nothing that could take the pain away other than dying. And so I, uh, <clears throat> I I, got up the next day, like at 5 in the morning. I went and begged for money. So the whole plan the night before was I was going to hustle for money. I was going to get as much money as I could. I was going to go buy all the, as much cocaine as I n- needed to overdose. And I wasn't going to wake up the following morning. But if for some chance somehow, I did, I was gonna have to do something about this because this I couldn't. I I was dead, alive, and it was no way to live. Um, and so yeah, I went and got all that that the money. I walked over to the some this neighborhood. I bought it was it was twenty grams of cocaine, which I thought would be more than enough. Um. I, walking back, I went into a used clothing store and st- stole a pair of jeans. And then I, I went into another one and stole a polo shirt because I, I, when they found me, I wanted them to not find me in, you know, rags. Um, so I had enough money to buy the drugs. I went and bought 36 beers, then tried to, and then had enough money to check myself into this, like, really bad news motel but with the idea that I wanted to be able to take a shower, put my nice clothes that I had just stolen um, oh actually I went into a grocery store, I also also stole a a thing of toothpaste (laughs) Um, because this was it. The last thing I remember was thinking I had run out of beer I had run out of cocaine and I needed to go buy more that's the last thing I remember. The next thing I remember were the paramedics working on me. And I'll never forget the. I was so angry uh, when I opened my eyes and I saw these guys bringing me back. Um, I was like, oh, why would you save me? You're supposed to leave me. And then... Yeah, they sure enough they you know they stabilized me. Did whatever they needed to do. So then that day I was like, well, I said I was gonna do something. I gotta do something. I had heard about this rehab. So then I said it took me a couple of days to kind of figure out what I was gonna do. But I ended up walking like ten miles to get and showed up at the gates and was like, eh, let me in. It was great. They they had a. Uh, it was the first time, in. 20 years, maybe more, that I had three meals a day plus two snacks. <laughs> I had a bed. I had a pillow. Uh, first time i had a bed and a pillow in two years, two plus years. That was the first time I went to sleep. Not that I fell asleep like, or that I passed out because I hadn't slept in who knows how long or because I was blackout drunk or whatever, that I actually, like, put my head on the bed, and I'm like, I'm going to sleep. There was calm for the first time. There was peace for the first time, I think, ever. The next day, I woke up, and I was like, I felt rested, and I felt refreshed. I felt good. Um, I had a ton of work to do, a ton of child support to pay. (laughs) I I had to fix my life, but I felt okay. Um, like the, all of that didn't matter. Like I felt like maybe I could do it, uh, and I stayed. Uh, everybody that I met through the through the program and through that rehab, they finished it off and and gave me the tools I needed to get to start working on everything I needed to work on.
0: So you so you uh, completed the rehab, um, and then how did you end up in Portland? Because you moved to Portland shortly <clears throat> thereafter, right?
1: Yep. Yep. They say don't get into relationships, and in you don't make big major changes. So like, if you're in one, don't don't get out, and if you're not in one, don't get in one. Well, my bright, <laughs> I had this bright idea where I thought it'd be it be, I thought it'd be a good idea to to go after this one girl who show, started showing up at these meetings who was really pretty, <laughs> and so I went after it. You know, they they said you gotta follow your dreams, so. Yeah, yeah. She was like, yeah, let's do this. And I was like, yeah, let's do this. Um, And obviously it was all sort it was like, just blow ups all the time. And um, But anyway, she's from Portland. She was thinking of moving back to Portland. And because my mom's from the States, I have dual citizenship. So for me, it was like, oh, we're going to Portland? Let's go. Let's do it. I'll move with you. (laughs) And so we moved back in. So I got into treatment in September twenty eighth. Actually, that was the the day they brought me back. September twenty eighth. I got went into treatment October fourth, two thousand twelve, mm-hmm. and then uh, two thousand thirteen. I moved August two thousand thirteen. Uh, I moved to to Portland with her. I felt for me it was also like a clean slate. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anything about Portland other than Portlandia. <laughs> Actually, I was going to move back to Costa Rica a few months after moving here. The job I had come for didn't really work out. She, the relationship didn't work out. But one of the first things I did when I got here almost immediately was I got connected with, with an AA group. And I found myself a sponsor and like did all of that. I was going to move back. Uh, and then pretty like the day before I was going to move, I got a call from a job that I had applied to before coming to the States that I never heard back from. And that night, that day, they called me and they'd say, Hey, can you come in for an interview tomorrow at 10 o'clock? And I was like, yeah, you know, things didn't really work out. I think I'm going to leave. I don't really have a place to live long story, but you know, and they're like, well, the job's yours pretty much. If you're here, great. If not, good luck. And then like 10 minutes later, my sponsor calls me. He's like, Felipe, I got one of your sponsor brothers. Um, He's one of my sponsees. He just finished a bedroom in his house. He's looking to rent out the other one. He's willing to rent it out to you. You can move in right now if you want. And I was like, well, shoot, I got a place to live. Looks like I have a job. <laughs> Let's do it. I mean, there was nothing. I don't have anything to go back to do Costa Rica in Costa Rica. So So that's how I ended up staying. And that's how I ended up getting my first interpreter job here in the United States. That day that I went after the interview... They called me that night, like at 10 o'clock at night, to go in to see if I could help interpret for for a patient at Legacy. It was to tell a Guatemalan mom, really young, that her baby didn't make it. Um, And it was like a really long appointment, and she was devastated, of course, and it was a super difficult situation. And I remember leaving there. I ended up leaving, I don't know, like 2 or 3 in the morning, something like that. Sad because of what had happened but knowing that this was the thing I needed to do because while I was on this, in the beginning or like right there right, while, while I was on the street, there was this one hospital near the area where I kind of hung out. Uh, there was one graveyard night shift guard who knew what was up, but he'd let me sleep in one of the chairs, um, in the emergency department waiting room. Um, that along with, uh, Newspaper is a great insulator. So when it was really cold, you'd grab newspapers and you'd you know, try to cover yourself with them. Um, and I always remember, I would rem- I, I would think about reading the sports sections and reading how the Costa Rican soccer team was doing this and this cyclist was doing that. And I was like, man, I bet I could have done something like that. You know, I, like all those dreams, all those aspirations, everything that I thought I was going to do, that had been lost and in this job uh all of a sudden i was being presented with this opportunity to help people in some of the most difficult situations in a place that uh similar to the place that gave me shelter a few nights a week uh and you know in a hospital
0: oh so you you when you were living on the street you were
1: yeah, in Costa Rica, there's yeah. this one hospital. Oh, I see. I so like, that's
0: what spurred. Then you were in an ER in this new role in a different
1: country. Mm-hmm. I see. Yep, yep. And then I was like, wow, I can help people. I can, like, actually do something for somebody else. Um, and, and, I don't know, be productive. Be, be a part of society. Well, you're society. important.
0: You, you, you're, you feel yeah. important to other people and to the world, which yeah. is a purpose for living and, and being.
1: Yeah, I think for me it's... Ultimately, it's I've I've what's helped me is, um, I used to I guess worry about whether I mattered or not. Now I don't care if I matter or not. Uh, I just try to do the next right thing, because my brain is broken. Like I don't know what the next right thing for like things that come naturally to people like this is the thing to do. I have to think about it, <laughs> and. My And and my mind tricks me, I guess, into thinking that maybe the thing that's not the best thing to do is still okay, you know. Uh, I call them very blurry lines.
0: <laughs> you mean like these these voices maybe in the back <laughs> yeah. of your mind of, yeah. of some of the bad decisions and stuff like yeah. that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, people ask you know, they'll say to me, dude, you're crazy. I'm just like, wait, hang on. Six of the seven voices in my head say we are not. And that seventh voice, that one's never on the same page. We just ignore that one.
0: <laughs> so the job, the sort of the stability and the value that the job made you feel, um, uh, that that was a really stabilizing force for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you also, I mean, after working, you, you had debts to pay and things you had to do in terms of focusing on work. But then you pretty quickly got into bike racing with uh, on Oregon here, in the Oregon Bicycle Racing Association. Mm-hmm. I, I was looking on, online before you came over, and in 2015 you did – 180 races, <laughs> Felipe. I mean, that's addiction level bike racing. And that was your yep. first year.
1: Yeah. Nobody so,
0: does that many races. So, how did, what the heck?
1: So, I got here in 2013, right? Um, and at first, of course, I had like seven different jobs trying to dig myself out of the hole. The very first thing that I knew I needed to do was get that child support going, start being there for my son, start sending the money down to Costa Rica, fix that. That was first and foremost. Um, And I was able to slowly do that, start paying some of my debts and um, uh, working towards that. But then after a couple of years, I was starting to think, man, like I I need to start meeting people. Like all I was doing was working and I was a little bit more financially stable to where I could actually like start meeting people. But like how do normal people meet? Like for the past 15 years or whatever it was, I was at the bar drunk, hi. I had drugs and people wanted to talk to me. (laughs) how do people how do I talk to people when they don't want to talk to me, right? Like would you go to the park or the library and just like strike up a conversation? Like, (laughs) I I started with triathlon actually. I ended up winning it. Uh like, oh maybe I can maybe I've got something here. We can try to talk to but I was too too embarrassed or too shy to talk to anybody at at that that day. So I figured maybe I'd do another one. Maybe it was just luck. I ended up having one of the fastest bike times, bike splits. But I ended up winning that one through Tri-Team PDX. Mm. Um, th- those were the, the the people that I got in with. They had the indoor cycling um, uh, program with Sean Bostead. Um, and I was talking to him a little bit about, you know, I don't know, about the swimming. Or, uh, he's like, well, why don't you go ri- r- r- just ride your bike, race the bike? I'm like, oh, I don't know how you do that. You know, how does that work? Um, and he told me about cherry pie, the road race done mm-hmm. in independence that was my first road race and I guess I didn't really have anything else to do, so I raced yeah,
0: so you <laughs> ra- so you raced a ton <laughs> for those next several years and you got better and better mm-hmm. and clearly maybe exercising some demons and really f- that focus and like real intensity that you had in other parts of your life you' like you were putting into cycling it seems like to me <laughs> judging by your results and how you sort of like really quickly caught on and became really fast. And like, you were a cat one before, you know, it. And I want to, can we like fast forward to like the, Mm -hmm. um, you ended up going back to Costa Rica, going back to Costa Rica to compete for the national championship road race. Yep. Take me to, to that race. and, And what happened in that race?
1: Well, basically I made it, like you said, from a five to one in my first season. And it was about seeing how far, what more I could do. So
0: you became a Cat 1 your first season? Yeah. Wow. Okay.
1: Yeah, so I made it from a 5-1 to in my first season. Um, Then raced a little bit as a, uh, like, my Cat 3, I basically won, like, three races, made, made all my points and, like, moved up you know, one of the things that had le- I had been left with was I left Costa Rica through the back door, tail between my legs, just an embarrassment, a shame, never having accomplished anything. And by this time, I had built an amazing relationship with my son. And I wanted to figure out being a dad at a distance, even though we talk pretty much every day, it's still those lessons that you can try to sh- uh, share with them or, or show them. Uh, it's It's difficult to do when you're not there um and, I was and trying, your son's like 15 years old now or so yep, right he's 15 okay. now and i was trying to figure out well how am i gonna how i'm gonna teach him that you can do whatever you want that you can it doesn't matter how far down you are or what how, how what you've lost or where you are or how much more everybody else has that if you want it you can do it and so i was like well you know maybe i'll go down and do a national championship and just say that I raced one, you know, pro nets, you know. That'd be a pretty cool story to show him. Um, and so I showed up, and uh, it was, they, they the race was supposed to start at 9, so I showed up at 7.50. Um, I guess at some point in the middle of the night, they changed the start time to 8 o'clock.
0: <laughs> you didn't <laughs> so, get the email, so, Felipe, so, come on. <laughs>
1: so, so I'm showing up, like, Everybody's at the start line, and I'm just getting there. And I actually found out because I said, uh, "It's at nine, right?" And they said, "No, it's at eight o'clock." I'm like, "Oh!" So I had to like go change and pin my number on. That's literally
0: like my worst nightmare in a race is like being unprepared, (laughs) being late to the start. That's the worst feeling. Especially then here you are, national championships in in (laughs) Costa Rica. Oh my god!
1: Yeah, it was. It was definitely interesting. One of I like my numbers to be nice and neat. My numbers were all crooked missing pins just all over the place and we had stopped to eat breakfast on the way so i had just finished eating this big breakfast like 20 minutes ago um and so and we started and i knew all along like being by myself against big professional teams um that my best chance of doing anything was going to be to be in a break if the break wasn't going to happen you know there's nothing i was going to do and uh so i went off the front again and uh, then two guys came up, then two more, then three more. All of a sudden, we had a little bit of a group, and I actually thought, oh, this isn't going to work, and I started falling back. And then as I was falling back, another guy came up. He's like, this is it. This is it. Come on, let's go. I'm like, okay, yeah, let's go. So I got back in it, and sure enough, that ended up being the winning move. But now there were like three guys off the front, and they were dangerous. It was a dangerous move because they all had teammates in our little group. So I went to the front and started just, motoring um and I kept moving over trying to flick in my elbow see if anybody would help and of course their teammates were like nope 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 and so I pulled for about 3k um and then I figured I was good. I had one more pull in me went for it flicked my elbow nobody came through and I'm like ah oh, I guess this is the race and then this other guy came up and he's like come on I'll work with you I was like yeah and so between the two of us, we brought that back. Um, and then from there on, it was just controlling the different attacks. Now, the race was supposed to be 150K. My Garmin was coming up on 143, and I didn't have anything left. I was cramping. My leg hurt. I was. It was hot. It was. <laughs> uh, I didn't have any water or anything. Um, and I'm like, you know, I think this is good enough. I, I I did what I said I was gonna do. I'm okay with being able to tell my son, this is what life is like. You try. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. And I'm mostly I was thinking about what I was gonna tell my son and whether or not he was gonna be. It was something an effort that was gonna make him proud. You know. Um, and as I'm, I'm about to drop out, uh, let the let the group go. I look up and like in the distance I can see the finishing arc. You know, and I'm like, wow, wait, hang on a second. Is that the finish? This is like a straight line, flat finish. This is like I've been uh-huh. doing PIR. I've got like 70,000 PIRs under my belt. I can do this. <laughs> um, And we were about 800 from the line, 800 meters. And I'm like, man, I'm in the worst position ever. But if I move up, I'm going to be in the wind. I'm going to, I don't know what to do. Now we're at 500 meters. And it was just luck, honestly. Another guy that was on his own, he launched from super far away and he went all the way to the left side of the road. And so I thought, that's it. That's my lead out. You know, that's this is the only chance I'm gonna have to get you know, some shelter.. Um, and so I jumped on his wheel and we were as we were on the left side of the road. and then the group started coming over to the left side. And I was really hoping he'd make it to 200, but he made it to about 300 meters. And as we were approaching 300, the group was coming in, and I was about to be boxed in. And so I, like, uh, grabbed—I was in my drops, and I just yelled at the guy that was about to come into me. I was like, no! Uh, And that made him, uh, like, uh, hesitate for a fraction of a second— just enough for me to squeeze through that gap, and uh, at about three hundred, and from there it was just put your head down and go. Uh, I'm like, All right, am I gonna do this? Like, am I gonna? <laughs> and then I f- I finally look up. I see the line. I think I'm gonna get it. I looked at his. Wh- I saw his wheel. I saw my wheel. I saw the line, and then it was like, and let out the yell. Uh, That's
0: amazing, man. And-, and, and I have to interject because I don't know if a lot of people that are, if everybody that's listening to this realizes, but you get into this, a big race like this at this elite level, all the other teams had six, seven, eight, eight people on them. And mm-hmm. the, you work together a lot, especially on a long road race. You, you protect your better riders. You, everything is strategized. And Philippe, you were down there by yourself. That's mm-hmm. what, that's just such an amazing effort.
1: Yeah, it was, I think it was I I I couldn't have asked if I never won another race in my life, and that was like the one race I was trying to use a, a, as a lesson for my son. That was it. Like it doesn't matter how 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 big the odds are, how much the odds are stacked up against you.
0: And there's this amazing video uh, online on Facebook where. Your son, who wasn't able to come in the support car, I guess, right, because mm-hmm. uh, he was too young. So he was watching in the hotel. He knew it had happened, and you approached him, and he like kind of jumped in your arms. Yeah, and you it was very emotional. Like, what was going through your mind at that point? Did it, did it cl- ever click for you that day of like the road you'd taken to get there?
1: No, no, I think not. Not that day. I think even <clears throat> it was very surreal. I didn't know what what happened. Like even when the first people came over to interview me, they're like dude you just won the national championship i'm like who did <laughs> you did I'm like nah. uh i'm here with felipe nice winner of the national championship i'm like yeah you you're, you're, you got the wrong guy you know who are you i'm like nobody <laughs> you know i'm no i'm just I'm just like you know that moment um was the true prize when i came back to the hotel and and my son ran out and, and ran into my eyes or into my, into my arms. Um, that was like, the, 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 that is one of the most precious moments I have in, in my entire life. Um, to be able to go back and, and, uh, having done that and, and having him see that, um, showing him that he can do whatever he wants. It doesn't matter what it is that he can do it. um, was really important because one of my biggest fears all this time, you know, that I was doing drugs was not being able to teach him that he can follow his dreams, Mm. that he can do anything he wants. Um, That he was going to go through life like I did without somebody to show him how to do it or that it's possible because it gets to a point when you're so far down, um, when you're in like on the street, there's no way out. There's, there's like people say, like, oh no, if you just do it, you can do it. If you want it, you can do it. Yeah, but it's not. I mean, it it is so hard to get out from under there. Um, and that's just to come back to like, you know, get, I don't know, get a minimum wage job and barely make it. Uh, l- forget about like trying to accomplish those dreams that you had you know when you were a kid it is possible uh, sh- and there's certainly nothing special about me there's many more special people out there that have many more talents and many more gifts um, that can do it and that's one of the biggest reasons why I, I keep doing it because um, tooling around in spandex as a 40 year old <laughs> when <laughs> everyone else is 20 <laughs> is, is not necessarily you know uh the way i i need to be spending my time now but
0: <laughs> well it's clear that like cycling clicks for you why why do you think that is why do you think cycling clicks with your personality
1: i i think that cycling definitely um is, especially road cycling um there is a lot of similarities to what is needed to be whatever it is, because you have to be sort of broken in your head to to want to go suffer for one hundred and fifty miles in freezing rain or one hundred and fifty degree weather or whatever. Um, uh, it 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 uh, it's very similar to to like an addict's mind. Um, I think there's there's a lot of similarities. One of the main things for me personally why I've been okay at riding a bike is i think i can suffer more than most people and you can train you can have the nutrition on point you can have the coach you can have the equipment you can have everything the perfect setup to race but when you're 190 beats per minute zone seven you know i don't know whatever 300 watts 400 watts for the last half hour doesn't matter how what you're riding if your brain shuts off if you if you can't shut your brain off and say shut up just keep going most most people that's when they stop and i think i don't have that stop my i just i just keep going do you think you were born without having that stop or i i would assume that maybe you had
0: to develop that way of shutting out pain Mm -hmm. and you basically trained that through your whole life given all the trauma you've Mm -hmm. been through i mean is that how you feel about it
1: yep absolutely i think um Everything that I've been through um, is I've been in training <laughs> uh, without knowing it, and that's kind of the positive spin I try to put on it because you have to decide whether you want to keep dwelling on all of these things, and people say, "Oh, it's in the past, or, yeah, it's in the past, but it, it was rough. you know the, a two year old shouldn't have these things happening to them, you know um, and so i have I had to find a way to just sh- shut it down. And focus on something else. And it's the same with cycling. Um I ride when I'm out there and like want to give up, it's no man, you're are you gonna call your son and told him you gave up or you're gonna tell him that you know you you did what you could and kept going? Are you gonna tell the person you just finished telling somebody that's suffering from alcoholism and addiction that it's possible to do this? Are you gonna not do it or are you gonna do it? And so, um, it was definitely something that was developed. And I don't know that if I had gone hadn't gone through all of that, that I'd be able to. I would be as, as minorly successful <laughs> at riding a bike as I as I as I've been able to.
0: Okay. on on, the, on a similar note, you just recently towed the line in your first um, UCI World Cup Cyclocross event. Which is amazing to reach that level. The best cyclocross racers in the world were just a few rows ahead of you. But you also did it as the first Costa Rican, right? Mm-hmm. To do yep. that in at least in the men's field. Mm-hmm. What what was what did that feel like to be in that last row at that at that <clears throat> race? And you did a few of them recently, right? Yep. So what's what's that been like getting into cyclocross?
1: Oh, it's been amazing. It was really cool. Is I was already I was there and I knew it was going to happen and I and I was there I was warming up doing warm up laps at at Waterloo in Waterloo and they were talking they were going over the start list for the elite men, and uh, he goes uh, it, was, it was like, um, Elise Felipe Nyström, Tunart and I heard my name, and I was just like I wasn't thinking about where I was or who was around me I was like. I just turned around and looked at the first person that I saw. I was like, that's my name. That's me. Those, right? are, two, those like, are
0: two of the biggest stars in cyclocross <laughs> like that you mentioned.
1: Ellie's name, my name, earth's name, that's, that's me. And they were all like, yeah, you rock. I was like, yeah. <laughs> and that that was the moment. I was like, oh, this is going to happen.
0: Okay, so Felipe, it's a very inspiring story. It's, it's amazing that you were even in that World Cup cyclocross race but I have to ask knowing about you what I know and don't take this the wrong way or don't take it too hard but what was it like being dead last? (laughs) I mean you were back there.
1: Yeah. It was amazing. It was amazing. For a brief moment I was like mid-pack in one of the races at the start and I was like yeah and then we started turning and then and then I wasn't (laughs) and uh Every time I came around the lap, one lap, I was like a, a 30 seconds down. The next lap, I was like a minute and a half down and two and a half minutes down. It was basically a race to see how many laps I could get in. And there were about five of us that were battling not to be last. Um, I have never been more proud than a last place finish. Last place there is first place better than any first place I've ever had, except for the national championship. Another thing, as you said I am the first Costa Rican male or female to race a cyclocross World Cup. Um, And actually, up for a while, I was the only Latin American on the UCI World Rankings. Um, And so, you know, that brings up a whole other aspect of things where now it's like, you know what? Cyclocross is really, it's great. And there's a lot of potential in other parts of the world, but it's mostly viewed as predominantly Northern European Mm Uh, sport. I certainly don't belong, but they made me mm. feel like I belonged, you know? Yeah. Um, and so once we're towing the line, hearing that tuk tuk, tuk tuk, that you, you we all hear it yeah. on, you know, flow sports. And they play they, the heartbeat
0: you know, pulse before yeah, yeah. the the, the, fi- the starting gun goes off on these races.
1: And they don't tell you, how, you know, when it's going to start. They say anytime in the next 30 seconds. And then you just look at this light and there's the, the heartbeat pulse and i've heard it on the apps i've seen it on tv who now is here waiting to start uh so it was great a great experience and it went so well that they extended an invitation the uci was like hey can you try to make it to europe and i was like i don't know i i pay for this on my own it was a hard i was hard finding the funding to to make it to this if you can, you know, we can kind of help you out once you're there. But please try to make it. and So I started looking into it. Um, and I actually will be going to do three more. So those are the three t- in Europe. On the
0: 26th. And then you come back for the, the, the final, the championship, yeah, the world so, championship? So I'll
1: do those three, come back, um, and then just keep preparing. And then head over to Fayetteville for Worlds in January. And then be the first Costa Rican to race a world championship. How how can people support uh, you
0: coming up here in January with this big run of races that you're going to do? How can people help you get there?
1: Um, well, right now, uh, a good friend, Travis Frazier, um, who I've met through cycling, he actually set up a, a GoFundMe uh, for it. So I have a GoFundMe going. Um, big thank you to everybody that has already donated. Uh, we just hit, just nudged over the halfway mark for, I guess, this bi- next set of races. There's been, you know, Trek, by bi- the bike Trek Bicycle Store has helped me a lot, you know, with discounts here and there and uh, labor and uh, whatnot. Western Bike Works, Bike Tires Direct has been there. I mean, they've been there f- from the beginning. And now for the next couple of months, I'll get to ride in, in my country's colors as a national team representative. Becoming the thing that kept me warm not too long ago. Like the picture uh, on the newspaper. Mm. You know, when I used to see Amador's doing this or the soccer team's doing that. Now there's articles of me. (laughs) That
0: is fantastic. Costa Rican National Championship road race you went down to without really a hope of maybe doing very well. You jump into this World Cup cyclocross world. You've mentioned to me in the past something about the 2024 Olympics like you have like zero fear and like so much confidence around these cycling goals. And it and it's from somebody who has these demons about like failure in in your past. I just see that as such a like a an interesting contradiction like you're you have this confidence to do these big things yet you've also lived with this fear of not achieving enough.
1: Mhm. I'm going to try one more time, one more Olympic cycle. Why not? I don't have anything to lose. And it's not so much, um, I think it's not, maybe not confidence. Um, so much uh, like knowing that it's going to work out or maybe, or fear that it's not going to work out. Is that I've already lost everything. I've already failed at life. There is no failure from here on out that will ever be bigger than what I have already failed at and come back from. And so I already know what that feels like. And so if I, the only failure that I fear now is not going for it. Because when I'm 70 years old, if I make it, maybe 50, 60 years old with my history, um, the one thing i don't want to do ever again is stay man i wonder what would have happened if i had tried this or tried a little harder i would rather regret the things i did than the things i didn't do mm-hmm. um and i think that's where maybe it can come off of confident, come off as confident um but i also i think more of it's more about that thing that's bro- broken me, where in me, where I I don't care anymore. Um, that fear that I that uh, that non fear that I used to have uh, with dying, with death, makes it seem like oh, if I lose a race, I lose a race. I don't care. There's twenty more that I can go do. And also knowing that no matter how good you are, there's always one person that's better and one person that's worse. Sometimes we get overwhelmed with thinking, oh, but there's so many people that are better than I am. True. But really, it's just one person. There's one person above you and one person below you. And then when you move up one, there's one person above you and one below you. Um, Because ultimately, there's only one person that's the best at everything. All the rest of us, we're chasing. Uh, So it's, I guess, so it comes down to how far, how long, and how hard are you willing to chase? Uh, And I'm going to find out when I, when I hit that wall. I still haven't hit it yet.
0: <laughs> awesome, Felipe. Well, we're going to be uh, following you as you keep trying to chase it for thank sure and, and doing whatever we can to support. And I, I'm really grateful for you uh, sharing your story here. So thanks.
1: You no, know, thank you again for the opportunity. I'm always a little hesitant because I know it's a lot. It's talking about myself, which I don't necessarily like to do. Um, but I know there's somebody going through something right now that maybe they're not even comfortable talking about with other people, but they'll hear this, maybe get something from it and, and I appreciate so much the opportunity that I'm given uh, to do that
0: That was Portlander and Costa Rican national champion cyclist Felipe Nystrom
1: You can find links
0: on how to follow and support his journey in the show notes. The Bike Portland Podcast is a production of Town Media Incorporated and is made possible by listeners just like you if you're not a subscriber yet, please become one today at bikeportland.org support. You can listen to more episodes and find out how to subscribe at bikeportland.org podcast. Our theme music is by Kevin Hartnell. I'm your host, Jonathan Moss And until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the streets.